We're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is 1 Kings 11. So do turn to that. One Kings eleven. We're going to pick it up from verse one. It says this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, "You shall not enter into a marriage with them; neither shall they with you." for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. From when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and that you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant." Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear all away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom, when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there for six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt, together with certain Edomites of his father's servants. Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran, and took men with them from Paran, and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favour in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphanes the queen. And the sister of Taphanes bore him Genebath his son, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genebath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart, that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, What have you lacked with me, that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, 
only let me depart. God also raised up as an adversary to him, Rezon, the son of Iliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after the killing of David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did, and he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach in the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labour of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out to Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shemosh, the god of Moab, and Melcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and will give it to you ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you, and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever." Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all he did and all, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So do keep that open, as we're going to be looking at that together. As we begin, just to say there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so please do make use of that if that's helpful to you. And at the end, there'll be an opportunity for any questions or comments, um, either from what I've said or if there's things in the passage that haven't been covered and you'd like to know a bit more about, then I'll mention that now so you can be thinking ahead. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together now. As your people, please would you help us to listen to it, to trust it, and to obey it. And we ask this, that you might be seen amongst us as the God who is truthful, good, and sovereign. Amen. <coughs> the sheer drama of this account, how Solomon falls from such heights, lends itself to drawing a moral conclusion. Don't be like Solomon. Whether that's put in terms of don't take for yourself many wives, or to have a more general appeal, don't be like Solomon and disobey God's instructions. The moral of the tale, then, is failing to heed God leads to destruction. This is a moralizing use of the Old Testament. It's the idea that the characters of the Bible come to us as either examples to follow or people not to emulate. Now, sometimes the characters are black and white, you know, goodies and baddies. But sometimes they're a bit more complex, like Solomon. I mean, earlier in 1 Kings, we could draw the moral lesson to pray for wisdom because Solomon prayed for wisdom. He's doing the right thing then. But he's doing the wrong thing here. So don't be like him here. In other words, Solomon prayed for wisdom, so make sure you pray for wisdom. Solomon disobeyed God, and so make sure that you don't. But is that all that this chapter adds up to? What did Solomon do wrong? The background for what is going on here is found in Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17 taking notes. You don't need to turn to it. Let me just read. It's quite simple. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. Uh, only, uh, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. This, con this contains instructions from God to his king. All but one of them, Solomon has already broken before we get to chapter 11. Although Solomon doesn't bother much with silver, that's only because it's of such little value in his day, he's already accumulated for himself much gold. He also accumulates chariots and horses. And where did the horses come from? Well, if you look carefully, 1 Kings 10.28, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. So all is not well with Solomon's heart. Before we get to chapter 11, Solomon has broken all but one of God's instructions to his king. The remaining one, that he must not take many wives, well, that's the subject of chapter 11. Now, why he took so many wives, I mean, it is thought that there would be a political dimension to these relationships. You know, royal marriages in the day were part of international diplomacy. 
And so for Solomon to have entered into so many marriages in this way was evidence of all the alliances that he had with the surrounding nations. But at the end of the day, it's not these things that the author focuses on. At the end of the day, what Solomon did wrong was idolatry. The problem with Solomon taking foreign wives is because 11 verse 2, they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Which is precisely what happened in verse 4. Rather than follow the Lord, he built places of worship for other gods, including Shemosh and Molech. The thing that Solomon gets called out for is idolatry. If God had been patient up to this point, he does not tolerate Solomon's idolatry. The very king who built the temple in order that God might be known now constructs high places for other gods that offerings and sacrifices might be made to them also. Now this analysis contributes to an understanding of what the real problem is. It's the problem that Paul would describe in Romans 1 that leaves all of humanity without excuse and under the judgment of God. It's the problem of idolatry. The judgment that will face Solomon has in the first instance some parallel with that of Saul. If you recall, Saul was Israel's first king, but he was the people's choice and not God's choice. The Lord rejected Saul as king, and through the prophet Samuel said these words to Saul, 1 Samuel 28. Uh, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbour of yours who is better than you. So in rejecting Saul as king, the Lord tears the kingdom from him and gives it to another. And this, this will be David. Okay. But now if you look at 1 Kings 11, 11 says this, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. So do you see the parallel? Just as God tore the kingdom from Saul, he now tears the kingdom from Solomon. But this is where the parallel ends. For look at how the Lord continues in verse 12. Yet for your sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Notice that there's going to be a delay in the kingdom being torn from him. It won't be in his lifetime, but the lifetime of his son. But notice too that it's not the whole kingdom that will be torn from him. One tribe is going to remain in his hand. So unlike Saul, where the whole kingdom was taken from him 
and given to another, here Solomon, or Solomon's son, is left with one tribe. Now the background to all of this is the promise that God makes to David that I read earlier in 2 Samuel 7. It's worth turning back to again because this is one of those passages that it is worth becoming familiar with because of its importance in the storyline of the Bible. So let's pick it up from 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. So it says here, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The key thing here is that the kingdom of God is going to be established through David and it's going to last forever. Either through an endless succession of kings or the installation of a king who lasts forever, although there's no mention of that here, David's throne will be eternal. Well, what then is happening to Solomon in 1 Kings 11 is to be thought of in terms of God's discipline. The promises remain intact. What we are witnessing is the discipline of God on his king. Now, God's discipline comes in the form of a number of adversaries that God raises up against Israel. There are three. Hadad and Rezan are enemies of Israel. And Jeroboam, well, he's told through the prophet Ahijah that he will be the one to whom the kingdom will be given, save for the one tribe left to Solomon's son. But it's interesting the form that this discipline takes. There is no fire from heaven. There are these three adversaries, which will be the means that God will discipline Israel. But it would be a mistake to think that this is simply cause and effect, that these things are simply the, the, the natural outworking of sin, rather than God being active in this discipline. The promise back in 2 Samuel 7 was that, I quote, I, that is God, will discipline him with the rod of men. God promised that he would discipline them by the means of human oppressors. And the language is quite clear in 1 Kings 11 that the Lord raised up these adversaries against Israel. Now, these events are not simply the natural outworking of sin in human experience. 
This is God's active response and discipline of his people. Well, we began with the observation that the fall of Solomon is so dramatic that it lends itself to becoming a moral tale. Don't be like Solomon, kids. But Solomon's significance is seen in that he is God's king. His idolatry jeopardizes the kingdom and it invokes God's discipline on his people. It brings into view the need for God's king to be obedient and how his obedience ultimately relates to the stability of the kingdom. And if ever there were an endless succession of obedient kings, or if there was installed an obedient king who lasted forever, well, then that would secure the safety and peace of God's kingdom forever. They're quite different endpoints, aren't they? One is a moral lesson, don't be disobedient. The second, well, the second engenders confidence in the kingdom of God because it has been established and maintained by the obedience of its king. And this takes particular significance when we consider that the obedience of that king was obedience to death on a cross. Rather than another moral lesson, we're being pointed to as to what will be required for God to fulfill his promise and establish the kingdom of God. And not only what will be required, but what indeed has already been provided in the personal work of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me pray, and I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account recorded for us, for our learning, on the downfall of Solomon. And pray, please, that despite its drama, that we would resist the attempt simply to draw a moral conclusion. But help us to see Solomon's significance in terms of he is your king. And that just as you promised to David, that if your king commits iniquity, then you will discipline him. And that that will have effects for everyone in his kingdom. But rather than think that this is just going to continually jeopardize uh, the, um, the safety and peace in your kingdom, we thank you that the promises remain and that we lean in to look for a king ultimately who will be obedient and therefore establish your king forever. We thank you that that king has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he was obedient even to death on a cross. So pray please that rather than simply leave here with a desire to pull up our socks, that you might engender in us confidence in your kingdom that has been established and is secure by the obedience of your king.
In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, anybody like to ask a question or make a comment? I try to keep things to the point so that we um, could follow what has been said. But obviously, there's detail that I haven't talked about. Oh, Nikki. Okay, let me just see if I've got you right. So in 11, four, five, sorry, 11 verse 5, it talks about Solomon going after um, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. And then you've spotted in verse 33, yes, because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Yes. Um, the they in my Bible has been circled, <laughs> which is uh, significant. Um, yes, so I think it is interesting, the fact that what the king does affects what the people do, um, which is not a surprise. And that's really, in a sense, why there's a particular interest in the king, because obviously the king sets the, um, the character of his uh, kingdom. Um, so... Which is, makes it interesting because I guess you have got a king and you have got a people and I guess there is a temptation that we identify with the king rather than the people. And so I guess that's why I'm, I'm trying to you know, keep us focused on things. Solomon's significance is not that he's, a, he's your, uh, you know, your generic um, Israelite believer that we identify with, we identify with the people. But obviously, you know, in the case of if the king falls, well, everyone in the kingdom is going to fall with that. If there's, if the king is opposed and there's these adversaries that are raised up against the king, then that's going to affect everyone in the kingdom. There's going to be no peace and safety for anyone. And so in this similar vein, I think you know, you're right to think that the king, because he has many wives, he ends up going after other gods then these become high places that the people also offer sacrifices to, uh, which in many ways makes his um, crime even more serious because of the effect it has on his people. But then wonderfully, you could then go positively and just think, well, actually, if a king does arrive who is obedient, then obviously then that has very positive effects. Actually, if we're part of his kingdom... Well, then we benefit. We benefit from his victory. We benefit from his obedience. We benefit from peace and safety in his kingdom. All of those things. So I think, yeah, that's a, a helpful observation. Is that, yeah? Anybody else?
Last chance. Sizi. Yep, so a question about the book of the Acts of Solomon, it's in verse 41. Do you know what it is? Is it significant? So, yeah, we, um, it's, it's been lost. Um, so we don't know anything about that. I mean, I think one thing, <clears throat> and this is a fairly small point, is that the fact it says, are they not written the books of the Acts of Solomon, you kind of get the impression that when that was written, you could go, oh, I'll, I'll go and look it up. And there is a place, I don't know if anyone else can help me find the reference. We've had the bit where it says, and it is here to this day. I've had several of those. Um, anyone give me a reference? It wasn't in today's passage. Eight, eight. Okay, eight, eight. Um, eight, eight. Oh, yes, and that's it, the poles. Do you remember the poles on the um, tabernacle? It says the poles were so long, eight, eight, so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are here, and they are there to this day. So again, when that was written, you just think, oh, we could... You could go and see the poles if you want to. So I think that adds a, um, a certain sort of confidence that when these things were written, that you know, there, there were records of other acts of Solomon. You, know, you could go to Jerusalem and see these things being worked out. This is history. Um, it is interesting that, obviously, as we read through 1 Kings, we're going to enter territory where these things are no longer to be seen because um, they are no more. And... It becomes a fascinating question, actually, to ask, when the book was completed, where were the people? And interestingly, if they were in exile, then the book has a very interesting um, purpose, because in many ways, what the book does is explain why the people are in exile. You know, it explains why all these things have happened in terms of God's discipline of his king. But... If you were in exile and you were reading through this book, you probably, when you get to a verse like 11.39, which says, And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever, you'd be thinking, hang on, this is where hope is located. Because this is not the judgment on Saul where he, he, the kingdom is, is finished with. This is discipline of God's king, but it will be restored because the promises remain. I will establish your kingdom forever. And so therefore, if you're in exile, which is precisely what David does, he knows the promises and therefore that is what he then follows. And that's what takes him back to Jerusalem and ultimately points to the coming of Christ. So I think, it, I think your question is an interesting one because it, you kind of enter the, the history and I think it helps us to see a little bit about the purpose of all of this, as well as travelling through in real time. There is a kind of, once you've got all of it and you're in exile, it's not only explaining the events, why are we here, 
what's God doing, but also therefore where do we go from here? Well, I suppose, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, so the, I mean, the, the book of uh, one and two, the book of two kings, I mean, I guess they're of a piece, if you follow it through, it ends where Daniel's already been taken off in the first cohort, Jerusalem is um, been captured. So yeah, it's all kind of, so you kind of think you can't complete one, two kings 25 until pretty much everything's sort of happened. So you kind of think as a as a, a book, which is a kind of a collection, because obviously when you get to 2 Kings 25, you can't go and see the poles anymore because they've been, you know, Jerusalem's been um, captured. But in terms of when the work is finished, you just think, who would get to read 1 and 2 Kings as a work you, you know, it's when everything's happened and you're, you're in exile, I think. But it's not just for their benefit. Obviously, it's for our benefit that we would then go back and, and learn. Time for one more? Quick one. Oh, Simon. Oh, hello. Hang on, hang on. Because he... Okay. All right. So, what, say again, 27, what's... Oh, yeah. Mm. Interesting. So, uh, question two parts in verse 27. He built, Solomon built Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. And... What's that about? And then what's the significance of Jeroboam? Um, <clears throat> yeah. So I don't know much about Milo. Um, but I can, I can check if there is a... Because um, some of these events are, if you look back in the like 1 and 2 Samuel, there is a record... I mean, the significance of the event seems to be that it establishes Jeroboam's ability, that Jeroboam is an able man because he, um, he was involved in that construction. So it kind of doesn't unpack the Milo bit, but it kind of thinks Jeroboam is presented as a very able man um, under Solomon's rule. Um, the significance of Jeroboam, well, it's interesting because I mean he is the one that is going to rule over the ten tribes and interesting that um, verse is it verse 30 uh, 7 it says and I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel and if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did I will be with you and build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you 
So it's interesting because I think we might be tempted to look at the history of just think basically Solomon had his kingdom and then there was a big bust up, the kingdom divided, it was all fairly unpleasant and messy. But actually here, Jeroboam, who's going to take charge of the ten tribes, has been picked because of his ability. Uh, he's received a prophecy from God that he is going to take charge of these ten tribes. And he's told if he rules as he ought to rule as God's king, then he will be blessed. Um, now, it does anticipate, verse 39, that he's going to off, uh, afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So there is still this anticipation. This is a temporary set of affairs. The, Solomon's kingdom has been divided as a discipline on Solomon, but it's not forever. But at this stage, you know, Jeroboam is a, you know, um, a promising, and actually he has that promise of, uh, of God. And so the question is, what is he going to do with that? Is he going to be, what kind of king is he, is he going to be? Um, in many ways, we get to follow that in the, in the coming uh, chapters. But I think at this point, actually, it's not necessarily the stage is set for what, what's, he, what's he going to do? Do you think, is that, is that enough to be... Yeah, I mean, I guess we're told in verse 26 a bit about his history, that he's an Ephraimite, um, a servant of Solomon. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I think we'll have to see. I think probably at this point, I just stick with um, there's... Um, um, this is it's God's choice, and it's promising, but we'll have to sort of see what happens, as opposed to... Jeroboam isn't someone who's just coming in and he's taking advantage. So in that sense, he's a bit different from Hadad and Rezon because they're established enemies of Israel, they're coming in, whereas Jeroboam has been appointed by God to take. Um, interestingly, Solomon, I mean, he doesn't do himself any favours because what does Solomon want to do when he hears of this, verse 40, he wants to kill Jeroboam. And I think it's quite interesting that I mean, no one picked up on this, but Solomon is contrasted with David. And when you think about David, you say, hang on, David's not great. But David doesn't keep silent about his sin, and particularly with the episode of Bathsheba and uh, Uriah. You know, we've got a number of Psalms and, and the history of 1 and 2 Samuel about his repentance and how he's restored. But Solomon's quite different because all this idolatry is happening but there's no word from Solomon that he's, he's demolishing the high places and protecting the people. He's just thinking, I'm going to lose my place here. Jeroboam's had this prophecy from God, and, um, and that should come as discipline, which he should accept, but yet he re continues to rebel against that. So in that sense, it's interesting. Solomon, with the knowledge that this is going to happen, he, he tries to thwart God's prophecy rather than accept discipline that is his. Cool. I'll leave it there. But we will continue the story through. Well, we're going to sing again um, about uh, 
that eternal king who has now been installed all my days 